right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right. Welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. We've got an incredible, we always have an incredible conversation because this is a, a Dr. Rick and, and company. And we're going to be talking a little bit about, uh, looks like a water sports, which again, uh, if you were on the pre-conversation, I have nothing. I, I'd probably kill myself, quite frankly. I did it when I was a kid. All right. For the listeners out there. Dr. Shaver, give us a little background on who you are. All right. So I'm a sports orthopedic surgeon in Knoxville, Tennessee, with Tennessee Orthopedic Clinics. I've been here since 2009, and um, that's pretty much me, and I'm a water sports enthusiast. You know, it's interesting. If you're looking out on video, if you look at his backdrop, it looks like a humidor. Just FYI, it does. <laughs> but as he's a doctor, it's not a humidor. All right, Wilson, give us a little background on who you are again. My name's uh, Wilson Rains. I'm a, a physical therapist. I'm a clinic manager for Cora at the Alcoa location, but uh, quite a while there I worked at Tennessee Orthopedic Clinics with Dr. Shaver as well. And um, a water sports enthusiast myself, although I don't think I have quite the, quite the experience as Dr. Shaver does driving or riding, so to speak. All right. <laughs> All right, Dr. Rick, it's up to you. Take it away. Well, I'm Dr. Rick Lehman. I want to thank you guys. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm the medical director at the U.S. Center for Sports Medicine. And today we, we have actually a great topic, and I'm glad you guys are, are on board. And Chris, Dr. Shaver, um, we're going to talk about water sports and, and water sports, specifically wakeboarding primarily and water skiing. And we're going to try to differentiate the two because they are very different in terms of an orthopedist can't on this thing. And I think to start out kind of discuss separating water sports in terms of wakeboarding versus water skiing and tell us kind of what the difference is and then maybe break it down in terms of water skiing in terms of slalom barefoot two skis etc how are they different i'm i'm going to tell you i'm not going to be a great expert on water skiing i've done it several times but it, it I, I gave it up several years ago to fall in love with uh wakeboarding and wake surfing um and so it's been been a few years but behind, behind uh, one or two water skis but if you want to get down to the basics it's basically it comes down to your stance your speed um and then kind of what you end up doing behind the boat um uh with each one okay. um Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, well, t well, tell us, tell us the difference between wake surfing and wakeboarding. I think everybody knows what wake, what water skiing is, because we're going to talk a little bit about injuries, obviously, and and we're going to mm -hmm. want to know why water skiing is so much more dangerous than wakeboarding. So tell us about wake surfing and wakeboarding, and 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 how how do they differ? So both of them, you uh, are on a board where you kind of get in the same, everybody's seen skateboarding. So um, you kind of are in the same stance as skateboarding. You're sideways on the board, whether, you, whether you're right foot forward or left foot forward. 
Um, between the two, there's a pretty big difference in speed. Uh, one is wakeboarding is generally done, well, but between about 18 and somewhere in the neighborhood, 23, 24 miles an hour. Um, you're actually physically strapped to the board. Um, whereas in wake surfing, um, it's very much like you see people surfing in the ocean, uh, except for obviously uh, on a lake, you don't have big waves to get you momentum going. You use the boat for that. Um, both of them use a similar rope and uh, beginnings of the, the getting up to your stance is fairly similar. Uh, but in wake surfing, you're going a lot, small, a lot uh, slower speeds, typically somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 and a half to 11 miles an hour. Um, and then once you get, um, once you get used to wake surfing, uh, you really no longer need a rope to hold on to, to do it. Uh, whereas wakeboarding is all about using the momentum of the boat to, to pull you and to do tricks or whatever you want to do from there. Well, so you mentioned one thing, which, which I think is important to all our listeners explain goofy footed. What, what, what's that mean? So basically their standard stance, which would be your left foot forward. Um, and then goofy footed would be right foot forward. And it just depends on which way you turn your body in, a, in accordance to the wave. Um, in, in uh, wakeboarding, there's going to be a wave on each side of the boat. And therefore, um, a goofy foot rider may turn their stance one direction to do one trick or turn it the other direction to do another trick. For the most part in wake surfing, um, you stay on one side of the boat. Although I have a 14 year old that surfs both sides and surfs in both one direction or the other. So pretty amazing. And so, so let me get this straight. So uh, when you're wake surfing, you're on a surfboard which looks like a typical surfboard. And when you're wakeboarding, you're on a wakeboard, which is kind of more rectangular. Doesn't really have the long skinny nose. They're, they're a little different. Correct. They're, they come in a wide variety of shapes and sizes, depending on what you want to do. Um, and there's probably a bigger variety in wake surfing than there is wakeboarding. Wake surfing, you can go all the way from a longboard, like you see, you know, in the ocean to, um, uh, little skinny boards and little short boards and then boards with fins, without fins, kind of depending on how you want to do it and the type of tricks people like to do. And, and, and why, why is water skiing so much more dangerous than either wakeboarding or, or wake surfing? Well, um, it's, it's a much higher speed sport. Um, you know, water skiing, people are typically get, getting up to somewhere around 30 miles an hour. Um, and they're using really high velocities, um, to, to whip themselves and, um, and thin out and get big, uh, big weights going out by the, by the, um, by their momentum. Um, you're also, uh, you're very firmly attached to the water skis. Um, and so, um, and your legs are independent usually unless you're on a slalom or something like that and 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 if we're going to talk about ways not to get hurt give us give us some tips on before we get into the injuries and kind of the 
the treatment of the injuries. How do you not get hurt? I mean, are there tips? Are there some things we should be doing um, to avoid getting injured? You know, what are the preventative measures one can use on a wakeboard, uh, a surfboard, water skis? How, how do we not get hurt? Well, I think one thing comes down to um, not just jumping in there, in there without being in at least some sort of physical shape. Now, albeit, if you want to go wake surfing, I've seen some pretty out of shape people get up on a wake surfboard. Um, and it's that's a little bit more, at least to get up, it's a little bit more of just having a little bit of arm strength and some balance. Um, but when you're talking about weightboarding and uh, skiing, you really need to have, you know, have some core strength and you had to have some balance. Uh, you need to have, you need to kind of, I guess you'd say warmed up your muscles to where you're, you're not coming directly off the couch to try to do these higher velocity sports. And, and, you th and obviously maybe it's obvious to me, but it, obviously speed relates to injuries. Faster you're going, harder your crashes, the more you're going to get hurt. I mean, that would seem somewhat logical. Yeah. Same thing with a, same thing with a car and these, and these sports are going about the same speed as a, as a decent moving car. And so, so you would attribute water skiing to be more dangerous. A, like you said, you know, you're really cutting the wake. You're going a lot faster. Your, your torque's a lot higher. Your momentum's a lot greater versus, I mean, when I see people wake surfing, you know, they're, they're surfing, but they're really not doing a whole lot of tricks. They look like they're surfing. Um, Wakeboarding is a little bit different. To me, it looks a little bit more treacherous. They cut the wake. They can do some things. Uh, water skiing, though, like you said, people jump over stuff and go through gates and, they try to hurt themselves. Yeah. I mean, they are, they are truly whipping themselves out there at high speeds and they've got to really know their environment very well, uh, what, what they might run into, um, other boats coming around. Those are big things, um, that, that could cause some horrific injuries. Uh, but as far as the, just the sport goes, both water skiing and, and wakeboarding have, they have, somewhat different injuries that are primarily associated with them, but they, they both can be associated with some pretty nasty injuries. And so, so using that as a segue, what are those injuries? Let's talk about weight boarding and then wake surfing and tell us or vice versa, your call. Uh, what are those injuries or what are those most, what are most commonly seen in wake boarding and wake surfing? So wake, wake surfing. I used to say the first four or five years I did it, uh, I used to say that it was very difficult to hurt yourself wake, wake surfing. Um, having now personally torn my MCL doing it, um, I know that's not true. And I've seen, I've seen a couple of other injuries, a couple of MCLs. I've actually seen a grade three PCL injury um, wake surfing. Um, but the majority of the wake surfing injuries are actually just someone falling down, hitting the board, knocking themselves in the face, uh, you know, doing something like that. True injuries for the number of people that wake surf uh, are pretty low. And therefore that's why it's, it's really a pretty safe sport. When you're talking about uh, wake boarding, um, it's, it's much higher. Well, one of the biggest injuries actually people get are, are head injuries um, because when you're, when you're wake boarding, 
you're you oftentimes will do what's called catch an edge in the leading edge of the board at going 23 24 miles an hour will actually catch the water and slam the person forward so concussions and head and neck injuries are not uncommon in wakeboarding um as far as I mean, and then people oftentimes, or not oftentimes, but can get things like shoulder dislocations, et cetera, when the, if they hold on to the rope too long. Um, and But most common things that I, I see in wakeboarding are injuries to the knee, um, primarily because you're locked down and then there's a sudden torque onto the board uh, trying to land a jump or something like that. So I've seen plenty of ACL injuries with, with, uh, wakeboarding. Um, the way the boots or the bindings are made with a wakeboard, it's a little less common to get foot and ankle injuries with a wakeboard. Um, now segueing that into water skiing, um, because the way water skis are made and because they individually torque side to side, um, uh, distal extremity injuries are a little bit more common in weight in um, water skiing, such as ankle fractures, sprains, strains, injuries to the uh, the cartilage surface of the ankle, things like that. So, so moving right along here, why don't you tell us about what happened when you tore your MCL? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was trying to do a trick where you take the surfboard and flip it 360 degrees underneath you while you're jumping. And just somehow I caught my right leg on the board on the wake and uh, it held the board up while the other half of my body went underwater. And um, I felt an immediate rip on the inside of my knee and my son whipped the boat around and said, dad, are you okay? That looked like it hurt. Um, and it did, I had to get my, my 15 and 14 year old to actually get me out of the water. Cause I couldn't climb on the, on the surf, uh, platform on the back. <laughs> and, and so you felt the pop. Oh yeah. I felt the pop. I had a, probably a, a grade two MCL is what it looked like on imaging and what it felt like. Um, so, but go ahead. no, I was going to say I was, uh, I'm kind of, dumb when it comes to those things i was back surfing in about three weeks or so um so 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 how'd you treat it and wilson uh how do you treat a grade two mcl injury dr shaver comes in he goes you know i was didn't think you'd get hurt but i proved myself wrong and i tore my mcl how, how are we going to treat that injury um First of all, you sort of assess, you know, if you got grade two, you're probably going to have some laxity there. So you're going to want to work stability above and below the knee. You know, like he said, it's it's going to be less incorporation into the ankle uh, if, you're, if you're getting back to surfing. But um, working hip stability in a squatting position, um, if they're really, you know, tight guarded and swollen, you want to do some manual, maybe a little light cross friction to the area to kind of stimulate some blood flow and some healing there. Uh, start with some adductor sets and something like that. But then if they want to kind of get right back on the horse, progress to um, adduction isometric squats, um, you know, sidestepping, and then eventually making sure that they're able to put a little on the adductor without getting that 
ideally before they get back on the board, but you know, you're going to have some people like Dr. Shaver that are going to get right back on the horse. So you can just, uh, and just do as much as you can in terms of medial stability, both the hip and the knee there. And, and, and we're just strengthening, uh, come into the picture when you're going to tell maybe not Dr. Shaver, but, but one of his patients when they can get back to playing football or back to lacrosse or back to wakeboarding or, or, or wake surfing, what, 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 where does strength fit into this whole deal? If they're uh, getting into it non-operatively, um, I've always liked to use even sort of the, um, the post-op return to sport guideline in terms of like, if you feel like, and if you can demonstrate on manual muscle testing, you got 85, 90% strength of the opposite leg. Um, let's say 90% if the opposite is your, your dominant leg there, or excuse me, 85% if the opposite leg's dominant, 90, 95% if the injured leg is dominant, both, uh, quadriceps is key. I mean, anything, any knee injury, um, particularly, you know, he, he talked about a PCL injury. Uh, the quad is kind of the agonist to, to support the PCL there. So you want to make sure they're able to uh, keep their knee stability in a straight leg raise with external rotation. They're able to cut particularly, um, let's say if it's a right knee, they're going to be want to be able to cut laterally to the right without any instability or pain at that medial knee, um, particularly with contact sports, because if you get that flex knee, cutting right on the right knee with a, with a valgus injury, you could be looking at a, a terrible triad type injury if you run back too soon there. And, and tell us what blood flow restriction is. I mean, how, how does that work? Blood flow restriction? Yeah. So um, I, I, I meant it more in a, in a sense of cross friction uh, stimulation for, to get a little bit more blood flow to the medial knee to sort of stimulate the body's natural healing process. If we got a little bit of laxity, but not a full thickness tear. Uh, some people do grass stem or a stem on the inside there. It all depends on tolerance. You know, if, if they, you know, MRI says they've got a grade two, um, but they don't have a ton of swelling. Uh, they're they're uh, not having a ton of point tenderness. That might be something you could do early on. Uh, otherwise, you may have to sort of let the swelling go down, let the inflammation die down before you really get into uh, into brass tacks in terms of doing some more manual work right at the at the uh, ligament level there. Super. So, so Dr. Shaver, how did you treat your MCL? So, so you got on the boat, you got in the boat, you think, oh, my knee's jacked up. This, this isn't going well. Then what happened? Well, um, I've had a lot of orthopedic injuries over the years, uh, doing a lot of different sports. And uh, I basically uh, popped myself in the MRI about a day and a half later just to make sure I didn't do anything major. Um, I treated myself with a ton of, ton of NSAIDs. I've, I've got a couple of different polar care straps I keep at my house for um, different things. <laughs> Um, and did a lot of that worked, my, worked myself into extension, uh, really early trying to really get my extension back. Cause, uh, that's what hurt the most. And that's what got my gait back towards normal. Um, and then, uh, I've got a gym in my basement. I started working on, uh, getting my, uh, quad and hamstring strength back and, um, Kind of self-treated like that, and uh, within within about three weeks, I was back on the board. And about four weeks, I could I could run again and jog again. And uh, I'm not playing any contact sports, and I wasn't trying any tricks for a good six eight weeks on it. Um, so 
you know, um, uh, you, if you talk to my partners, you could see the litany of, uh, dumb things I've done to hurt myself over the years, but whatever. <laughs> How long did it stay sore for? Uh, about two and a half, three months. Uh, I did it the last week of July and I remember thinking to myself in the neighborhood of Halloween, I didn't really notice it anymore. You know, that's really good information. So, so now that we've talked about MCL injuries on a personal level, let's talk about the grade three uh, PCL injury and, and, and assessment and how do you treat a grade three PCL injury? And in a second, we'll, we'll grab Wilson to talk about uh, that as well. Yeah, so, uh, you know, gradiating the PCL is basically, you know, grade one's going to have, you're going to have an endpoint to it. There's going to be a little bit of a different side to side to, to your posterior drawer. Um, uh, but a good firm endpoint, your medial tibial plateau is going to be at least anterior to the medial femoral condyle. Um, then you get down to the grade twos. And, Grade one PCL is essentially 100% treat non-operatively. Uh, send them to the therapist. Um, maybe, maybe uh, get them in one of the counterforce type braces, but um, those generally heal up pretty nicely. Grade two PCLs um, take a little bit longer. Um, and I, at least in my practice, if it truly feels like a grade two PCL where it does have an endpoint, but there is a sag to it, there is a little posterior drawer. I keep them off of it for a short period of time as far as any sort of true active um, trying to play sports, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I will usually get those in a little counterforce brace with a little anterior drawer brace um, to take a little tension off the PCL. Um, but in my practice, most of those are all going to be treated non-operatively. Uh, the grade threes are where it comes to be, you know, what's your activity level? What's your age? How did you do it? What is it? Is it in isolation or is it associated with some other um, meniscal pathology or something like that? This, this particular lady that I took care of. Uh, I did reconstruct her cause she had a, uh, she also had a meniscal root avulsion, um, at the same time. And so, um, I did an allograft reconstruction of her PCL and then did a, uh, root repair concurrently. Um, and, um, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's sort of my general algorithm for most of them. Um, I, um, I don't see very many NFL football players here in Knoxville. Um, and, uh, but I do see some pretty high energy, um, um, you know, high school sports and some lower level college sports. And uh, so there's, there's a, there's a broad variety of what I see here. So. And, and what do you use for your graph? Um, so, I I've gone to doing basically an all inside a uh, PCL reconstruction, and I use that preform uh, the large uh, PCL graft. That's twelve millimeter graft. Um, I, it's generally about approximately a twelve millimeter graft uh, is what I use. And how'd you repair the root? Um, if Remember? I. Uh, 
if I remember correctly, I most likely did a transosseous repair. That's usually what I do. One of the retro reaming little cutters and a few millimeter tunnel and repair it down through that. Um, that's probably what I did, but, um, well, that's good. That's good. So Wilson, uh, Dr. Shaver does a PCL, does a root repair transosseous with a bud or a swiveler or whatever he did use. And, uh, and how are you going to rehab that PCL? What, what, what's your thought process on immobilization when they can wait bear, given a root repair? How, how are you going to rehab that knee? Well, the, depending on the extent of the meniscal repair, you know, he may, I'd say, and he can correct me if I'm wrong here, he'd probably be more wary of weight bearing with the meniscus early on than he would with the PCL. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I keep my PCLs kind of protected weight bearing for about a month and then progress them typically off crutches at six weeks is what my my standard for just a PCL is. When you're adding in other other collaterals or meniscal repairs, it's kind of a situational thing for me. Meniscal roots, I usually keep the same thing. I keep them kind of protected, touchdown weight bearing for about six weeks and then progress them off of things at about – or at least begin to progress them off between four and six weeks. Um, right. So it'll, it'll start similar to, to an, an ACL in terms of, of um, we'll do a lot of exercises and extension, sort of slow flexion to tolerance. A lot of times early on um, they'll be in, uh, they'll be in, uh, the brace, unless they're in PT for, for flexion um, and uh, straight leg raise and avoiding the extensor lag with gait, particularly early on as one of the, one of the things we really work on. Uh, and then as we progress, you know, if you have a uh, allograft, we don't have to worry about protecting the hamstring or the patellar tendon early on, like you would with some of the autographed ACLs. Uh, so um, we begin to, as they get full range of motion and ditch the crutches, uh, rather than focusing on the hamstring stability like you would for an ACL in terms of supporting it for return to sport, uh, we tend to focus more on the quad uh, because it's sort of the, the agonist there. Uh, not that you don't, ex, you know, uh, emphasize quad strength with a ACLs as well. But and with the meniscus, it's, it's kind of slowly grading that that squat, you know, making sure that they're not pushing too far into pain, too much torsion on the meniscus uh, and making sure they're comfortable at their squatting level, starting at 30 degrees, 45 degrees, 60 degrees, 90 degrees, uh, and making sure that they're not um, hyperextending or, or anything like that that could put too much tension on that repair. And then with a PCL and a meniscus, I'd imagine he'd say if it's a contact sport, probably close to, to five to six months full return to sport. That'd be about right. Yeah. With PCLs, actually, I typically tell those kids um, to go the better part of the better part of about nine months before they're trying to um, do any sort of contact sport. Um, it's just a, it, it's a little bit of a different animal to me than an ACL is. Um, but, um, and you get so many in those contact, you know, you get in football, you get so many anterior knee blows um, that I, I'd certainly worry about the, the graft um, uh, even a little bit more than I do with an ACL. Agreed. Agreed. And, and, and I do, I, I progress. I'm slower. I do a double bundle and kind of, kind of a similar thing, but uh, yes, sir. So now that we've kind of broached this just a little bit, I got to ask you, 
Uh, what are you doing for your ACL grafts? And, and, and if you have different graft choices, how do you make that choice? Yeah, so um, I, um, okay. So I use a ton of different variety and I give patients a lot of choice, but I give them my, my in their particular situation, what I think would probably be the best for them. Um, so I always say for me, I mean, you can kind of tell I'm a pretty active guy. I'm, I got a few extra, I got a few extra pounds than I did 20 years ago, but I'm still doing all these water sports and I ski 15, 20 days a year. So I'm pretty active. However, if I tore my ACL today, personally, I'd have an allograph because I would get back to work quicker. I would be back up on my feet quicker and I, and it gives myself the knee stability I'm looking for. Uh, however, when I'm talking to my high school collegiate athletes and that are wanting to get back to grade one high level sports, um, I'm definitely more on the autograph side. Over the last couple of years, um, I have transitioned. Uh, I used to be a lot of hamstring graft, um, and I did a transtribial hamstring graft, suspension fixation in the femur and screw in the tibia with some backup. Um, over the last several years, I've transitioned to all inside ACLs, and um, uh, I use almost exclusively uh, auto quad these days. Um, and it gives a nice fat collagen graft. Uh, I can pretty reliably get a uh, nine to 10 millimeter graft uh, out every time. It's pretty easy to get the correct length. Um, and so that's what I've, I've meandered to over the last uh, few years. Um, and I, I haven't, I haven't seen any significant downside to it. I haven't had any um, major, you know, complications or anything like that. And the graft, um, the graft harvest is pretty easy. I, I started, uh, I guess you'd say again, meandering away from hamstrings because the variability in the size, you know, you get that teenage female that's um, 17 and you get a, seven millimeter graph you don't know and that's that just doesn't feel like that's enough for me um but uh so that's kind of where i am right now it's really it's really dictated uh also on patient desires um and but usually somewhere in in that high 20s low 30s area where people are they're more moms and dads than they are football players and volleyball players is where I start saying, Hey, you are probably going to get back to work a lot quicker and you're going to have a stable knee again with an allograph and will lower morbidity on you. And, uh, and so that's kind of somewhere where my decision point goes. And, and if you had to do a revision, so you did your quad tendon and uh, somebody went out wakeboarding and or wake surfing and tore their graph, what would you use? So if I if I had originally done it all inside, uh, and I felt and quad, I, quad tendon, what what would you use for a revision? 
So um, the company that we or I procure my grass from does have variable size where you can kind of pick your size graph. And I usually go a, a millimeter, a millimeter and a half larger than what I drilled the tunnels prior and use an owl graph um, at that point. That's typically what I do. Uh, I do go ahead and um, try to measure my, try to measure my, um, tunnel to make sure there's no any tunnel lysis or anything like that. I haven't really seen any tunnel lysis that I can, could appreciate with the all inside grass. Um, I used to see that with screws a lot more when I did that. Um, and so I knock, knock on wood, I haven't had to do any of the, the dowel grafting of any revisions or anything like that since I went to all inside. Um, and uh, now if someone came to me and they had a previous transtibial, um, um, then that's where I start thinking I'm going to get a CT scan to make sure they don't have, a, a, you know, some big cystic lesion in their tibia or something like that. Um, uh, and that's kind of my, that's my MO right now. Um, I've always, personally, I've always done independent drilling um of both sides um and like you say with the double bundle i was trained with a double bundle in in fellowship um and um i started off doing a few of those at the beginning of my private practice and i don't know when the data was kind of eh, uh sort of went back to independent drilling tip uh single bundle acls yeah um, and, i agree I I did a few double bundle ACLs, probably not very many. I do all my PCLs. We see a fair number of PCLs double bundle, but I, I don't think the literature is compelling enough to, to, to warrant the Freddie Foo double bundle uh, and an ACL. I don't, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze there, so I, I couldn't agree more. So, Wilson, you got to tell me, how are you going to rehab this ACL? Quad tendon, 22-year-old uh, football player, quad tendon, wants to get back to playing football. Give us your regimen for an ACL in general rehab. So, right. Uh, like Dr. Shaver said, you know, you, you're sort of a protected weight-bearing uh, extension early on. Uh, it's just sort of the opposite in terms of worrying about the, the autograph. So you're probably going to have a little bit more pain, a little bit slower progression into flexion with that quad tendon graft. Um, <coughs> and obviously, you're going to be avoiding – uh, open chain extension for quite a while after the ACL. So you don't have to worry too much about the contraction. Hopefully by the time they get to uh, being cleared for open chain extension, they won't have too much soreness there. Um, and uh, it's all about uh, uh, quad strengthening early on, making sure that they're able to, um, to walk without, uh, without an extensor lag, but also hyperextension, uh, putting any additional tension on that graft. Uh, and then making sure the knee's strong uh, in four ways there. Uh, but just really just anticipating that the, the quad is going to be tighter. You're going to take a little bit longer for that knee flexion, um, making sure that uh, the knee joint is mobile, you know, do some, some medial glides if, if, you're, uh, if you're getting any joint restriction, but it's going to be all about the quad tendon early on. Maybe do some soft tissue work once the graft is nice and healed. So it's a little bit less painful, a little bit more flexible once they get to doing kind of heel slides or cleared for open chain hamstring curl and that kind of thing. That's awesome. So I'm going to ask both you guys, 
And first, I'm going to ask you, Wilson, what do we forget? What should we have mentioned in, in water sports, water injuries, wakeboarding, wake surfing, water skiing that we didn't talk about? Um, I, I think we, uh, we covered quite a bit of it. I, I think from, from my perspective, the, the one thing that I would add um, as, as far as return to the water uh, in terms of more advanced rehab, um, almost like like almost everything else I do, you got to introduce uneven surfaces in the clinic before you're putting the patient on uneven surfaces in the water, a little bit more stable environment, something you can kind of spot them on. Uh, and one of the things I think is a little bit more fun to do is um, if a patient, I've had a couple over the years, not too many, but uh, slalom skiers, you know, uh, tandem stance stability is huge, uh, getting them to be able to balance and squat on a BOSU ball in that tandem stance position, particularly if they're trying to uh, get up directly from a slalom ski rather than drop one, um, which you can get into a whole litany of, let's say, hip flexor injuries if you catch a tip trying to drop a ski. Uh, but yeah, that's that, that proprioceptive training and kind of introducing compliance surfaces is, is probably the only thing I'd add in terms of returning to the water. That's awesome. Dr. Shaver, kind of give us what, what we forgot, what we should have talked about that we didn't. Um, well, the, the one thing I always emphasize with my, uh, with my kids is, the, uh, is honestly the environment you're around. Um, because we live on a we, – we have the luxury to live on the lake here, and we can get out on, on the water anytime we want to. And a lot of times we avoid those, those days where there's just – a boatload of boats, uh, out there, um, because people aren't watching where they're going and you get these, uh, you get folks out in the water and they can get hit around here. It happens. Uh, so you got to know where you are and what you're doing. Um, and, um, other than that, I think we covered a lot of them. The one thing I would say is anybody that thinks that they, uh, they can't wake surf, they ought to get out behind somebody's wake surf boat for an afternoon and try it out because uh every day behind my house i see some guys in their 70s and 80s wake surfing so um it, it's it, it it's the way to keep keep up something that's a lot of fun listen thank you you guys were absolutely awesome and very informative and i think the listeners out there are really going to appreciate it i mean just it's 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 a, it's a different kind of sport uh, I actually have a whole compendium of, of, of water, they're mostly water skiers, ski jumpers, uh, and, and they do competition uh, in Illinois, which is a little right, right across the river from St. Louis. Uh, so we see a lot of water skiers. I don't, I don't water ski a whole lot anymore. I grew up in Miami, did a little bit as a kid, just like Scotty. But uh, the, the insight is, is, is excellent, and uh, I really appreciate you guys taking your time and uh, giving us some pearls and uh, teaching us about water sport injury. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Got thank a, you. I, I've got a question to ask you, uh, Wilson. Uh, given Dr. Shaver's uh, history, uh, are doctors more difficult as patients? Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. He, he was about his, his partners and the injuries they've seen him have. <laughs> <laughs> across yeah. the track that, uh, yeah, not, not the most compliant. We're a lot harder. Yeah. I was back on the skis in two days. Hey, yeah. you know, I'm a doctor. I'll just do it on myself. I'm just going down there. And, um, how do people get a hold of you, doctor? Uh, well, 
our our website, Tennessee Orthopedic Clinic, um, and uh, it's tocdocs.com, and uh, you can easily find me there. Um, yeah, happy to see anyone. And and we know we can get a hold of uh, Wilson at corephysicaltherapy.com, someplace right around there, right? That's All exactly right. right. Yeah. And and you know how to get a hold of Dr. Rick. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, all of you for joining in your corner with core physical therapy it was great and now that i know that i could be 70 or 80 and be able to get out on the lake i'm gonna go have that conversation with my wife that's <laughs> uh, not gonna go well <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you very much thank you guys excellent